and welcome back to the Kid First Sports Podcast. I'm Coach Dave. I want to tell you about my goal with this podcast. I'm building the Kid First Coaching online training and certification course for coaches and clubs and schools because 70% of kids quit playing sports of any kind by age 13. I think that's a real problem. Not because some of them may have been amazing professional athletes, but because if youth sports is done right with coaches who love the kids, they can shape young people's lives for good. Health outcomes are better. Mental health outcomes are better. Socially, they have a better environment, more confidence about themselves. My dream is for every youth sports coach to be Kid First certified, just like we do every year for concussion and child safety and other things. So please leave a review, share this podcast if this sounds like something that you can support. I hope you do join me. So today I have a very famous guest. In fact, he was voted, and I'm not kidding, the third funniest kid in his high school. Yeah, that's you, buddy. No joke. Andrew McNerlin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Dave, man. Uh, so excited to be here. We've had some nice spirited discussions and getting to know each other the last two or three weeks. So I'm anxious to see where this goes. <laughs> it's going to be great. Well, Andrew is a sales pro in the self-funded employee health benefits world. If you don't know what that means, then we'll just pass on by. If you do know what that means, he's a guy you want to know. Hit him up on LinkedIn. I'll put his link in the show notes. Connect with him. Ask him what he's doing. All he does is save employers a ton of money and help give their employees better health benefits. Like that's all he does. Just save money and better benefits. It's not a bad combination. So that's what he does all day. But all night, soccer is his second religion. Okay. And despite my best efforts, he's a Manchester United fan. Okay. I, I, the, yeah, exactly. We're on video. You, he's pointing to a thing on his wall with a couple of, <laughs> couple of scrubs who played for Man U. I don't know who they are. You can't have everything, right? You can't be handsome and smart and successful and a soccer player and like Liverpool. Today's topic, Andrew, is the lifelong impact of sports. Lifelong impact. Andrew has stories from his youth to his adulthood that have demonstrated the power that sports relationships and the challenges that come with sports has to shape his life and these young kids' lives who are playing. Andrew, was there a coach who really impacted your life as a kid? There were two, and they were they're quick stories. But my first select travel, you know, as you would probably refer to as a travel program, I was named Dave. I won't use his last name, but this was a very affluent soccer team. I did not grow up rich. I was in South Texas. I don't remember even how I got into the team, but I made it through tryouts. These guys were really hard on me. We got in trouble. We weren't performing at practice the way we should have. So, Coach Dave said, hey, you know, let's run some laps around the field and see if we can't straighten out your attitudes. And all of these kids, I remember this so distinctly, man. And I was in middle school. I was part of 1990. Hmm. And I remember all the, the kids were cutting corners, right? They were cutting before the corner flag and not after. And it was, they were acting like it was a race. And I made every corner flag and I ran it like I was supposed to. And that showed something about me internally to me. My dad always told me there's nowhere worth going. This is a shortcut to it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't mind coming in last and Dave, that soccer coach at the end of practice said, you're going to go somewhere. You're going to be talented and the character you just distributed in that exercise, keep with it kind of thing. And then my middle mm-hmm. school basketball coach, which I, you know, I was a good basketball player. Dave, I don't know about you. It was only cause I could, I had quick feet cause of soccer. I mm-hmm. could play like crazy good defense. He couldn't believe it. He's like, you've never, pl- I never played basketball. And so I joined the team and he's just like, dude, you're like my best defender. <laughs> and I was like, I just know how to stop guys with the ball. Uh, right. it's, but he, uh, 
he impressed on me because we had this all-state soccer or basketball superstar kid. He was a coach's son. His dad coached a local college program. He was a very well-known name. But he cussed at my coach one day and he, he made a comment that he shouldn't have made. And my coach, his name is Jim, came down on him like a ton of bricks in front of everybody because the kid deserved it. But it was very important for me to see it. And I figured out very early on, I want everybody to have the same chance. I want the same chance as the star kid to prove my worth. And mm -hmm. had that coach let that go and, and kind of infect the team because we were all sitting right there, I would not have cared for that. And I called Coach Jim years later and I told him, thank you for that life lesson, that sports lesson that he provided me because it didn't matter if you were the A player or the B player, like you're going to treat the coach and the team with respect or you're going right. to, and he sent him out for the half of the biggest game of the year just wow. to prove it. But yeah, I thought it was awesome. Good on him. Good on him. As I was thinking, my first reaction to that story, if I'm being honest with you, is, oh, man, he yelled at him in front of the other kids. And then as you kept telling the story, I'm like, oh, yep, yep. And he sat him. He was doing that kid a favor. I think know? so. I hope so. He was I doing him a favor. No, he was. And he was doing you guys a favor by saying, you know what's more important than you having 25 points and, and 10 assists and eight rebounds? It's you understanding that human relationships are the most important thing right? And the way we treat each other defines how we have these relationships. And these relationships make us who we are and who we become. And we're, I think we're going to hear stories about that with some, some key people in your life whose relationships with you shaped you. Sure. Wow. That's good on your coaches. Good on them. And good on you for not cutting those corners. I got to tell you a quick story if I can. I remember I was a freshman. This is on that, cut, that corner cutting topic. I was a freshman at Emmaus High School. It's like the first week I made the varsity team as a freshman. We we're a pretty successful team, so I was pretty excited, but I was also the youngest. And all these kids who I kind of idolized, the seniors and juniors, and, and we practiced at this park. And we had to do similar thing, part of our fitness. There was this loop around the park, big loop, probably a mile at least, this big, big loop. And about a third of the way through it, far away from where the coaches were, there was like a, a brick building. It was probably bathrooms or something. And, every, and we had to do like 10 laps. It was long. And every lap, a handful of these juniors and seniors would stay behind that brick building while everyone else ran. And I remember, I'm like, I went through the first one and I turn around and I see these, these older kids sitting behind the, the brick building. And I'm like, what's happening? What, what aren't we just supposed to do or we're supposed to do? You know, I'm a freshman. I'm like, we got to go run. We got to run. And I run around. And the second time that the captains are doing it, everybody's doing it. And then they're like, hey, Vass, come on, you stay with us next time. And that's the end of the story because I don't remember what I did. All I remember is that it stuck with me that the older players, that was the modeling that they did for me, the example they set. And then they tried to get me to do it. And I'm sure I did it because I was impressionable and I was a freshman and they were the captain. But I, I remember that story. There's always opportunities to cheat, right? To cut the corners. Always. You want them. You look for them. You're going to find them. So I just remember that. That's reminding me of that story. Hey, kids, don't cut corners. Coaches. Pay, pay attention, pay attention to the kids who don't cut the corners, right? Okay. That's, you know, where their heart's at. Well, well, listen, thanks for sharing that. First thing I want to talk about, you played division one soccer back in the nineties, right? Nineties. Yeah. yeah. Late nineties. That was a good time. That was a good time. I remember that. That's music. <laughs> That's right. Really wide jean pants. Really cool. Yes. So where'd you play your college soccer? I played at Centenary College of Louisiana. At that time, and this was 1998, it was the smallest Division One school in the nation. You would know Hal Sutton was one of our famous alumni as a baseball guy. Mm -hmm. And then Robert, the Chief Parish from the Celtics. Get out. 
a basketball dude. Yeah. So those are like our two famous alumni, but it's dude. And Andrew McNerland. And Andrew, yeah. 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 <laughs> my, my archives are somewhere in the bottom basement next to like the cockroaches and a lot of dust. <laughs> but no, great, great little school. You know, there were maybe day of, I like, I heard Vax. You never allowed me to call you that. So I'm locking on. You call me Vax. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So he had a man vast. There was maybe 800 undergrad students there. So it was like mm. going to school with my senior class of high school. It was very, very small. And my other choice was Virginia Tech, which is about a 60,000 student yeah. population yeah. back at that time. And so I kind of had this decision that I want to be a number or did I really want to know everybody that and just like who gave me the biggest scholarship the furthest away. I had like the worst picker criteria of all time. I just wanted out of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, you know, I wanted to get away, you know, just do me and take off the world. And so I settled in Centenary and Shreveport. It was, it was a good time. That's cool. So you're a Tennessee boy. Texas and Tennessee. I had lived, as you and I talked, I've lived in oh, 13. Right. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so I feel like a really well travel guide for my age, but my heart's probably still in middle Tennessee. Okay. Yeah. Well, so how did you end up in Louisiana at that school? Yeah. That coach had saw me at a tournament. And I recruited the heck out of myself, David. You know, if there's anything I would love to impress upon the, the kids, kids like your son who are, are finishing up their high school careers, moving on. There was a book at that time, and, and there has to be or an online something or other, but there was a book that listed every collegiate program, D3, NAIA, D2, D1. Mm. And it tells you the coach's name, kind of the style of the coaches, like the formation they would run and the wow. system. It, it was amazing, dude. That thing looked like it was like my second Bible. And I recruited the heck out of myself. I mean, I wrote letters to coaches. I sent game tape. Wow. I was, and we're going to get into the D1 thing. I know is where you're yeah. leading me to. Yes. Just like, you know, with my job and us as consumers of healthcare, you have to be an advocate for yourself as a mm. patient mm. or you won't get the care and the treatment that you need. And yep. so I started thinking no one's going to come court Andrew. I've like, you know, played for this little school in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And I'm like, I've got to go out and, and sell myself, so to speak. And so I really, man, I, I mean, I spent more time on my recruiting efforts than I did in my schoolwork, probably. Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> so this coach recruited you to play at Centenary College. Correct. Now, what was your, I mean, you said you were also recruited or had an opportunity to maybe go play at Virginia Tech. Because of my recruitment efforts, and I used kind of a shotgun spray approach, right? right. I mean, I focused on Division One because I had set a goal for myself when I was, I think, 12. I had promised my parents, I know this is one of the things we'll, we'll get to, but I had promised myself and my parents that I was going to play Division One soccer and I was going to get a scholarship. I had, you know, come heck or high water, I was committed. I was going to put in the work. This particular coach, yeah, had sold me to tournament was very interested. He was in Louisiana and I was in, in Tennessee. So it was a really long commute. So I sent him a game tape. I, I had a phenomenal region semifinal game. I scored, I think I scored both of our goals and I was sweeper at that time. So I really was able to quarterback the game from, yep. from my position and just play lights out that night. And so I sent him that and he's like, dude, I won't, yeah, he, he, he flew to Nashville and he was there for something, but he met with me. We had dinner, which I don't know if it was allowed. <laughs> I think it was. But, you know, we had dinner and we were, I remember dinner was so cool. He was giving me a, he's like, we're going to switch to a flat back four. And I'm like, but I'm a really good sweeper. Like that's not going to work for me. And he was using the salt and pepper and sugar packets as like formations. And we were playing soccer with all that on the table at Olive Garden. <laughs> but it was so much fun. Uh, but that's, oh, that's yeah, I, mean, I decided on him because I didn't want to go to Virginia Tech and be a number. But it's like, you know, I'm going to get lost in a sea of 60,000. Yep. Vanderbilt did recruit me. 
two things popped up. One, the coach said he would give me $10,000 a semester for scholarship. I'm like, where do I get the other 15? That's yeah. sweet. Yeah. And the second was, I'm not that smart academically. Yeah. You know, Vanderbilt scares the potatoes out of me. So <laughs> I don't know if it's best fit for Andrew McNerlin. That's good. And this is a, th a theme through Andrew's life as I've gotten to know him is there's a high level of self-awareness and a willingness to just be who you are. There's probably a lot of kids who would have thought, oh, Vanderbilt, bigger name, awesome school. I'm going to go there. And maybe it's good for them academically. Maybe it's not. But to, to have that kind of self-awareness to decide what's best for your life. Now, you were at Centenary for how long? Only a year. And then what happened? I decided to leave. It was a very tough decision. I decided to leave for, for two reasons. One is I wanted to, I believe in paying it forward. You know, my parents were missionaries. I have a servant's heart. I've always felt that way. And mm -hmm. one of the things that frustrated me when I was coming out of Middleton, this is called Middleton, Tennessee, I'd say Murfreesboro all the time. And to all those watching, Murfreesboro is 25 miles east of Nashville. So basically you can call it Nashville. Yep. And I was really frustrated because at that time, the only Division One soccer programs in the state were Vanderbilt and the University of Memphis. And I had told you, I the University of Memphis and I had run up against this coach. I didn't think we'd be a good fit together. So yeah. I never really considered that as an avenue yeah. I pursue. But I got frustrated. I'm like, man, there's a lot of guys that I'm playing club against and stuff. They're really talented players. And they're flaming out after their senior year because they didn't do the recruiting. And it, the recruiting is not easy, right? And mm -hmm. to get known and, and all that. So they just stop playing or they play rec in college or something like that. And that's fine. But I went back because my old travel coach, Jeff, called me at Centenary. He's like, are you happy? And I said, not really. And he said, well, I'm going to take over the club program at Middle Tennessee State. And I want you to come back and you know, you're one of my stalwarts. And I said, man, that sounds awesome. You know, with an opportunity to hopefully build it into an NCAA sanctioned program so that other dudes like me behind me can go and, and play some ball, but get a good education, still be around their families if they want. And so I did it for that, but also because my coach at Centenary let me down. Yeah. Tell me about that. That seems like a pretty big factor in a decision to, to transfer schools. It did. And it goes back to, and I think this is going to poke a bear at you. Look, man, this was division one soccer. This was a job. Okay. And I learned the business side of the sport once I decided to take money to perform, you know, and I'm okay with that. I, I really was. I understood that expectation. You talk about yelling at a kid. My coach was a very short man. I'm six foot three. One practice, he drugged me around by my head in a headlock uh, in front of my team. Because he was unhappy with, you know, move I made or something that went on. And I didn't really care for that. But I'm also like, look, man, I'm not the only Division One scholarship player. You know, football players, I'm sure, you know, coaches get your face mask, as I like to call it. It's a literal yep. thing in football, but in yep. our football, you, you can track with me. Yeah. So he did that. I didn't really care for that. He he undressed me at a spring game in front of everybody because I got I got torched. I was guarding an All-American from SMU and he spun me like a top and scored. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guilty. And I was like, this guy's really freaking good. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, but he absolutely just waylaid me in front of the team at halftime. And then the mm. third one, and probably the, the biggest driver, is after the season, my freshman year, and I touched the field maybe 10 times. Dave, I can't remember. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't a starter, I wasn't a star. Yeah. Uh, it, it, all you guys out there who are moving from high school to college, you're going to be a rock star at high school. When you get to D1, buddy, the clock starts over, man. You're a yep. rookie. You are a yep. freshman. You will have to fill up water jugs and clean them and carry them to practice. Yep. 
Trust me. And these guys yep. are all as big, as fast, and as strong as you are. So be yep. be mentally prepared. You are not going to be the rock star that you are. You're going to have to re-earn that title. Yep. Uh, I struggled a little bit, Dave, with that because I came from that scenario, right? All stayed in Tennessee and everybody knew me and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I go there. And, yeah, they're all as big as me and as good as oh, me. Man, and like, totem pole. Holy cow. Mm-hmm. That was fun. You know, I like that challenge. So spring, see, you know, in the off season, I was up training like nine o'clock at night. I was in the weight room you know, trying to get bigger and better. And I wanted to play next year. My coach like, you have a chance to start. And I'm like, cool, man. So I'm, I'm getting after while the guys are partying or doing whatever. I'm in the weight room at 10 o'clock at night. And I walked down to coach's office. He was watching some game tape. And I said, Hey coach, I'm, you know, I'm upstairs and uh, working out. I said, I want to try to max out my bench press. Would you come up and spot me? Cause no one's up there with me. And he just looked at me he was like, McNerland, I'm really busy right now. And I said, okay. And I left and, and went up and just worked out, finished work out. And I, I emotionally decided, I said, you know, how am I going to be a starter for you if you don't care enough to invest in me for 10 minutes while your other players aren't putting in the effort that I am? I'm not saying they, whatever they're doing, they're doing. I'm not going to say, but I'm up there busting my butt, man. And if you can't give me 10 minutes, if you don't care about me enough, that, that, that told me everything I needed to know about probably my future with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the program, that's when I called my MTSU coach and I said, yeah, right. I'm Jeff. I think I'm ready. I'm coming home. I think it's cool. Wow. Yeah. In my mind, trying to play that scenario and see it, you know, sweaty young kid working hard. It's late. Maybe your coach, I don't know if he was married, had a family, but maybe from his end, he had a lot going on and, and he was trying to get done. And then he's faced with a choice. And the choice is what is my number one priority here? That is a decision that every coach of every youth athlete ever has to make, whether it's at a D1 program or whether it's a rec, you know, eight-year-olds running around program. And the question is, when there is a child, in your case, a young man in front of me, what do I do, right? Where's my priority? And it's, I don't think it's always as simple as, well, you should just do whatever the kid wants. That's not what I'm saying. But I think in that moment, if that guy had thought that his job was to produce outstanding young men who also played soccer. I think his answer would have been, yo, McNerland, give me five minutes and I'll be up there because I got to finish this thing. I'll be up there. I'll spot you. Then I got to get back. But then tomorrow at practice, I'm going to need you to do something for me. Right? That's probably how I would have handled it. Something just to be like a little playful, maybe a little bit like back and forth and, but- and make a boundary that says, I have to finish this thing, but I'll be up there in five minutes. If he had thought, I'm producing young men who are going to be of great value to society who also play soccer or baseball or football or who swim or who run. I think that that outcome's different. And look how that changed your trajectory. You left the school. You gave up your dream of playing Division I college soccer. And you went to play club for Middle Tennessee. When that coach, I think his name was Jeff. Yes, correct. When you called him up, what was his response the second time? He was, he was elated. We, we both yeah. related me to work together again, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. I knew what he knew what he was getting. I knew what I was getting. Yeah. And I knew some of the other players that were, he was already, you know, he was aligning his chessboard and I was a big yeah. portion of that. Big piece. Uh, some of the other gentlemen that were there, I had played with for years past in the, in the middle Tennessee scene, soccer yeah. scene. Yeah. If coach Jeff is sitting in the, his office at 10 o'clock at night at Centenary instead of your other coach who was there and you come down, McNerland comes down, he's sweaty. He asked for some help. What does Coach Jeff say? Coach Jeff was so wild. A lady, I, I honestly think I was one of his favorites. We used to ride to practice together. He would drive me to practice because it was in Nashville and I didn't have a car yet. And I was 
I was a 14 year old on his U17 team. And when I got to high school because of that mentality, Coach Jeff recruited me and let me play on his team when I was way younger than the other gentlemen. And, and these kids were really, we were the second best team in Tennessee behind yeah. a, a team out of Memphis. But Coach Jeff was crazy enough that he would have just stopped, and not even crazy number. He, he, he cared about his players and he would have stopped whatever the heck he was doing. He would have hit pause and he would have gone right upstairs and hung out. Yeah. Like, you know, it worked with me. That was yeah. just his. He was a he was a player first coach. Yeah. Well, I was just going to point out here. He also was coaching at a lower level than your other coach was. And the point I want to make here is that being a player first, under 18, a kid first coach, over 18, player first coach, you don't have to be the world's greatest soccer coach or baseball coach. You don't have to be. I know everything about the sport and I have all the success to be a coach who changes lives. Right. And by the way, you change lives, you're going to have success because Amen. players like McNerlin are going to be like, I will run through a wall for you, Coach Jeff. So when you ask me to do X, Y, Z in a game or to train in this way or to put in the extra fitness, I'm doing it. And so are the rest of the players because they know that we're your priority. As opposed to Napoleon at your last place who his job was his priority, his success was his priority. And you guys were just pieces, right? He'd plug you in. If you were going to make him successful, he plugged you in. If you weren't going to make him successful, he, he unplugged you. And maybe that's just the life at D1. But I don't think so because I've seen professional coaches who train and, and treat their players like their top priority and they're pros. So I don't think that that's an excuse. So you, you switched over, you played club. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had, you know, had your career. L let's go back a few years. You mentioned, and you talked a little bit about yourself being kind of like this intrinsically motivated kid. Yes. Were you, were you just born that way? Cause I I've coached a lot of kids, some who are, you see the motivation, they do the training, they want to come early, they work really hard and everything. Most kids aren't that most kids are like, I enjoy this. I want to do better. I want to be with my friends. And then you have some kids who are lazy and they just don't want to be there. It's like a bell curve, right? Mm -hmm. So you found yourself on that end of the bell curve where you wanted something because you wanted it and you were willing to work at it. How'd you get there? And like, were you born that way? I don't, I don't know that we're ever born that way. I, I got a lot of good example from my dad is probably the hardest working guy I know. So I mean, he's the kind of, he ran a grocery store for a big chain and he was at, he was at his office at three 30 in the morning running payroll because no one would be stopping by to bug him. Right. So he could focus and do the, the administrative part of his job. And that way he could manage his people when they all showed up for for retail operation hours. So, you know, I learned a lot of that stuff from my, my parents raised me very independent. My, I have an older sister. She's the same way. Uh, we all, we always say, well, there's as much self-esteem as self-reliance. My parents went to work, they both work. And so I was at home by myself as a nine-year-old, you know, after school kind of stuff. And that was okay. Yeah. Most yeah. time I was out, I juggling a soccer ball, trying to get better. Mm -hmm. But no, you know, my career with soccer started simply because I wanted to be friends. I wanted friends. And the reason I say that is we moved to a neighborhood in Dallas that was, I'm not going to say affluent by any means. It was at the upper part probably of our income, but there was a lot of foreign kids. And so I'm out there and I'm showing a lot of promise in baseball. My old man played scholarship in division one, uh, at the air force academy on baseball. Mm -hmm. So he was a stud, you know, I'm trying to be like dad, make dad proud and, and was playing. I was showing some promise in baseball. Baseball Dave is a very lonely sport. If you're, uh, <laughs> uh, you're playing by yourself, so yep. all these foreign kids were playing in the neighborhood in the cul-de-sacs or in their yards or whatever, playing soccer. And I just went over there to, I was like, Hey, I'm a decent athlete. Maybe I can fit in. And I really enjoyed the game. Mm. I just got very good, very fast. It was fun. And my neighbors, they were really good. And they, 
were patient with me and coached me up and always would let me join. And so, yeah, I mean, the most of them, I got my butt kicked every night, but I didn't care. I just decided I could, I think I can be good at this and I really enjoy it. And I gravitated away from baseball. I think that disappointed my father, but I didn't, you know, it was just like, this is fun to me. This speaks to my spirit, you know, and yeah. now when I smell fresh, fresh cut grass, that's like one of the greatest smells to me ever. And that's just because <laughs> even I grew up on a, you know, right. 120 by 80 patch of grass for most of yeah. our, uh, our, yeah. our formative years. So your primary objective with playing soccer when you were a kid was to have friends and to be active with other people. Yep. I mean, you, you are new in the neighborhood. Kids were playing. It's hard to play baseball by yourself, as you said. And there's at least kids playing another sport. Now that could have been anything. Could have been, could have been so, any other sport, pick up basketball or pick up, you know, playing football on the street or whatever it was. But that just grabs the power of the social side of youth sports. Thank goodness, because I mean, we were the generation of latchkey kids, right? Younger kids won't know what that means, but latchkey kids, that was that first time where the moms and dads were working. We have a key around our neck. We go in and a lot of latchkey kids played video games all the time. Yeah. And that's what we did. We, we played Nintendo and we watched TV and uh, I didn't, I say we never had a television slash video game machine. So we were always outside or we were reading books, but that social aspect of it is so powerful. It's the soccer that you learned from your neighbors that got you excited about it because they were excited about it has stuck with you. And now you call it your second religion. Think about that little twist in fate that puts you on a whole other path than where you were. I love that. Again, why do kids play sports? Why are 70% of kids quitting by age 13? What if you didn't play any sports? That's fine. People are perfectly successful and happy of having not played sports. However, the numbers show that if you play sports as a kid and you stick with it, certain benefits you know, accrue to you. I just love that those kids took care of you and brought you in and were, and were patient. As you got along and you realized this is a game I really like, you decided to set some goals for yourself. And at 12, you already mentioned, I'm going to play D1. I'm going to get a scholarship. You told your parents, like, this is what I'm doing, right? So you have that drive now. And you threw some posters up on the wall. I remember as a kid, I had some posters as well. And at the time, I didn't necessarily care that they were Manchester United players, Eric Kanzman. You had it up there to give you this vision of, of what you were chasing. What was on your wall and what did that mean for you? I had three posters. I had Pele, who in my, still, my humble opinion is still the greatest that ever. He's my Michael Jordan, right? I still mm -hmm. think that dude is the best that ever did what he did. Mm -hmm. Revolutionized the sport. I had Paolo, a guy named Paolo Maldini, who's an Italian, mm -hmm. the famous, famous Italian defender. He's the best I've ever seen. And I played yep. that position, that center back. So that was, yep. to me, yep. I got to analyze him. Uh, and then I had this poster that I know you'll show it. It's an Adidas marketing poster. And it's got that, you'll see it, but it's got this guy doing a push up in the raid. And he's out trading by himself. And I always hear, you know, a lot of, a lot of athletes talk about, I put in the work, uh, even, even what's your professional life, David, you know, you put in the work when no one's looking, that's mm. the work. This guy, it was my ghost. I, I chased him constantly. And I was like, I, I can do that. I can be that. I always tried to pride myself on the fact, like even at high school, when I was getting a little bit better and then moving into MTSU and all that stuff, working out late at night, that's the mm -hmm. kind of stuff that's the work you're putting in when no one's watching. Mm -hmm. That's what makes you set yourself up for the, the greatest amount of success that you could achieve yeah is that right the games come and, easier because it's hard well uh, that's true and now as a pro right a, a real pro professional yeah like being a, that lesson goes with you so who are you chasing now what ghost are you chasing now i still chase him man 
I, I always have. There, I can't say there's some professional sales guy out there. I, I have mentors within my profession that I rely on, and I encourage anybody through any facet of life, get mentor. I wish I'd have learned to get them earlier mm -hmm. as a man. I was too proud, and I thought I knew everything. Yeah. Mark Twain once said, when I was 16, I couldn't believe how dumb my dad was. And when I turned 22, I was amazed to see what he had learned. And I'm like, that's like the smartest thing I've ever heard. You know, so I, I wish I had it. And that's mentors in your business. That's mentors in your face. That's mentors in your sport. Whatever that looks like, you know, surround yourself with positive coaches. I mean, obviously they have a massive impact. So if you're playing under one that doesn't work, you finish out the season. I don't ever believe in quitting. You sign up for a 12-game recreational soccer, you're going to finish. My kids, I've always told my wife, she's like, oh, they can quit if they don't like it. No. We will honor our commitment. We signed our name up for something. And then at the end of 12 weeks, if that's not our jam, we move on and do something else. That's right. That, yeah. I still cheat him because it's just, to me, it's being a professional. It's putting in the work. It's being dedicated to your craft. That that was always that to me, being the first to show up on Monday morning yeah. at five before yeah. the meeting, being the last one to leave on Friday night, making that extra yeah. sales call, whatever that looks yeah. like for your, your yeah. life. Challenge yourself. Forget what the world tells you. You challenge yourself, you're going to end up in a pretty good spot. Yeah. I think as coaches, you know, sports coaches, what we see a lot in the kids is a comparing to other kids. And in fact, I had this conversation with one of my own children. Uh, having, you know, coming into tryouts and they come home and they're like, so-and-so is in my position. They're just better than me. And all I did was watch this person and this player was just better. They did everything better than I would. And I'm competing with them for a spot. That's real talk with a parent and a kid. And what do you say? No, you can do it. Or do you say, no, he is better than you. Or do you say, you know, what do you say in that moment? And for me, it was this conversation. It was like, well, we can and should always learn from the people who do what we want to do better than us because there's always going to be people better than us. But you're not chasing that guy. You're chasing your lesser self, right? You're competing against you. So you show, because if you don't do that, and coaches, if we don't teach our players this principle, managers, if you don't teach your sales team this principle, yeah, they're chasing a, you know, I got my quotas, I got my numbers. But the truth is, if you can teach the people that you're responsible for that their opponent is their lesser self, they're going to hit those numbers more often than not, right? Because they're not going to be distracted with, oh my gosh, Andrew's already at the top. You know, he's halfway through the year, he's hit his quota. They're not distracted with that garbage. They're not distracted with the player who's in their position who's better than them because they're saying, I showed up early, I got stretched, I was ready to roll. I put my heart into everything we did today. When I left, I felt, I looked at my lesser self and I said, Hey buddy, you just lost. And the coaches notice kids and, and sales teams and, and anyone else you're working with, they notice the kids who are, and the people who are competing against themselves. And I'd say for you, as we move into kind of your adult life, you know, you're not, you're not still an outstanding center back. I'm sorry. You're probably pretty decent, but the running <laughs> thing gets in our way. My Listen, coach. yes, you're unfortunately 100% accurate. <laughs> yeah. So we move on from sports, but here you are. What we don't move on from is our own health. And I want to talk about that with you for a little bit. So you quit playing soccer and in your young years, you're a successful guy, you know, I think in sales and you're doing well, and, but your body slipped a little, right? You got a little, a and, a and I remember you, you told me a conversation about that you had with a former co-captain friend, someone you trusted. And he said two words to you that again, changed your life. What were those words? You're fat. Yeah. And, and how'd you feel when he told you that? 
Well, almost got up and punched him. <laughs> and you guys were what, like late twenties, early early thirties. Uh, yeah, I was living out in Seattle after my my first job after I graduated from Middle Tennessee State was to to go out to downtown Seattle and, and start my professional career. And I was grinding. I was doing the right things, vast for for you know, working eighty hours a week, being mm -hmm. that go that guy, the ghost I'm chasing. But now it was sales, and it wasn't my body, it wasn't my health, it wasn't you know any of that. So I went back for bachelor party for an old college teammate. And, and we'll call Al, my co-captain. And yeah, we were sitting there and he looks at me, he's like, you're fat. And I said, okay. And he goes, we had a tournament to win. I wouldn't call you because you couldn't help me. Hmm. And that like, man, just dagger. But he was a hundred percent right. And I wouldn't call me. And I had to kind of turn into the mirror and say, okay. And he goes, you go get your butt. And he said different word. You go get your butt ready. We're running the Murfreesboro half marathon in three months. And I expect you to be there. Hmm. I said, okay, challenge accepted, sir. I dropped 60 pounds in the next three months. I went absolutely nuts with my fitness and my diet. I tightened everything up. You know, anything that was a, you, you mentioned distractions. I put my blinders on and if it didn't help me, I had to do my job professionally. Yep. And, you know, I was single at that time. So I had to yep. ride for myself, but Anything that was a distraction from either work or training didn't exist for me. Mm. Just, just nothing. And, and I yeah. got ready and I ran it and I didn't run it in the time that I wanted to. My grandfather used to tell me, Dave, he always said, your word is the only thing you could give away and still keep. Mm. And that's mm. always stuck with me. Always, always, always. It's wise. So well, I gave so you, out my word and I kept it. And you did it. And that's great. So you went, you ran the marathon. You lost 60 pounds, which by the way, 60 pounds, half, half marathon. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, yeah. Those people are crazy. That's yeah, they are crazy. They're nuts. <laughs> the, you'll, 60 pounds in three months is pretty extreme. You, you did it. Clearly, you're, we already know that you're a motivated and, and dedicated guy. And I assume after you did that, everything was smooth sailing, right? You kept all the weight off. You kept running all the time. You became a really healthy and fit person. And we're always there when your buddy called for soccer tournaments. Is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah. GQ called me shortly thereafter. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> you know, I wish I could say that. So right after I did the marathon or right before, excuse me, I, I was overtraining. I was probably almost as good a shape. I was in college. There was this program bass called P90X. Oh yeah. Real big mm -hmm. staple yep. back in, you know, back then. Yep. Man, I was so in shape. I did that. And so I was, I was looking good, feeling good, you know, 30, 30 year old mean green fight machine. And then Al did call me to go down to Charleston, South Carolina with all my old crew and you know, all the guys we would play with for years and years. We had a men's tournament that was for money. Oh, yeah, wow. And so we're like, it, there was a reason to go. It wasn't just because we all wanted to have fun. And eight minutes in, I had already set up an assist. I was killing my guy. And I'm like, man, this would be the greatest tournament of all time. ACL. Like a sniper shot me out of oh a my Lee Harvey Oswald town in the first eight minutes of the game. It's like, well, my weekend's done. That has been mentally the hardest thing to ever, for me as an athlete and really as a man to overcome. I didn't feel invincible anymore. I felt worthless. My teammates couldn't use me. I couldn't exercise or work out. I just didn't feel like I could be of any value. Uh, and I don't know why I thought that, but I was 30 you know, at that time, yeah. and it just the first time in my sports career that it wasn't, it was an acute injury that set me down on the sidelines yep. and nothing had ever really kept me that way before. Yeah. And I'll say this too. I didn't have any major injuries like that until a couple of years ago. And I tore my meniscus in my knee. And I think what you're describing, I know that feeling it's, wow, I'm not really a soccer player anymore. 
I may not ever play this game again, or I'm so now old and you know whatever. I now am not what I have always defined myself as being. And if you think about it, the truth is we in the back of our minds still think we're soccer players. We still think we're athletes. We still see ourselves at the pinnacle of our careers. I got again, two thumbs up from McNerland. And, and that sits in the back of our head. And I think in some ways that's good and keeps us kind of moving and positive, positive image about ourselves. But in some ways, I think it also inhibits us from letting go of some things in the past and, and being fully focused on who we can be and should be right now. So you did your knee, and I'm pretty sure what's going to happen next in your story is you set a goal, and then you worked your tail off to get your goal. And then, am I right? Am I tracking here? They said it, take, it should take nine months for a typical athlete. I got it done in eight in a week. Yeah. yeah, I said goal. I will beat nine months in terms of my rehab and getting yeah. back out on the field at full capacity. Yeah. And how I want to kind of start finishing up here is I want to bring back to that conversation with Al. What Al said to you was, if I needed someone on a team in a tournament, I wouldn't call you because you couldn't be there for us. Now I want to swap Al out for your wife and your kids. And I want to say, Al did you the biggest favor because that same conversation could be happening. It could happen. And it's happening everywhere right now with, with people in our age, right? And it's the men and women, parents, wives, husbands, people who are in, in the kind of middle aged. Our health, if it's not good, if we're not taking care of ourselves, the people we love the most are going to look at us and say, you're not going to be there for me. If I need you, I don't know if I can call on you. And I know you're a, a God-fearing man and a family-loving man. Could you imagine the pain in your heart if someone you loved in your own family looked at you and said, health-wise, I can't rely on you? And, the, and I'm not talking about- My yeah. wife said that November to me. Wow. Down wow. here in this office. And I, I have lost 50 pounds. As of next week, I've lost 48 as of this morning since January 20th. And I will get to 50. And you shouldn't, you will. I shouldn't focus on it. Yeah, I know. It's a goal. Yeah. It's and, a goal. And I, so sorry, I digress. But yeah, no. I, I had that conversation. It was embarrassing for me. Yeah. But, but she first was, of all, but first of all, good on your wife for loving you enough to come and straight talk you, right? Second right. of all, I'm not talking about, you know, health is a whole spectrum. And we all know there are some things we can and cannot control. I'm not saying if you don't look like some ripped 45-year-old dude who's at the gym all the time, that's not what I'm saying. And there are people with chronic ailments, all that, not what I'm saying. I'm saying take a look at who you are now and whatever your ability is health-wise to, to manage your strength and your fitness and your eating. And can we improve it just a little? Not because we want to look a certain way, not because we want to play soccer with our buddies, but because... You have kids and a family that's going to need and want you around for many, many years. And her coming down and straight talking you said, I want you with us for many, many, many years. How about you take and fight your lesser self one more time? Fight your lesser self one more time and let's strengthen up. Let's get healthy. I just think that story kind of caps off your entire life of being challenged, setting goals, someone helping you see the vision of what you can be from those eight-year-old kids in your neighborhood who showed you you can play soccer to coach Jeff who said, I need you here and you're worth my investment to keep you on the team and teach you and be with you to Al who said, you're fat, you need better, you deserve better, we need better from you to your wife. You have been blessed with a series of people in your life 
who have been willing to say to you, be better than your lesser self, and we believe in you. I mean, that to me, is that not what we're here for on this earth? I'm sure there's people in your life who you can now have the confidence to say, hey man, hey lady, hey kid, hey whoever it is, I need the best out of you. We need you to be better than your lesser self. So now you can turn around and share that. And that's just what changes the world. I tell my little five-year-old guy who's a lefty, so he's going to be the future of American soccer. boy. I tell my kids, so I got a nine-year-old little girl and a five-year-old boy. And I always tell them, if you want to have a friend, you have to be a friend. Hmm. Because they're always nervous when they go to sports. I don't know anybody. And I was like, just just be a friend. Be a good teammate. Slap hands. Encourage them. Edify them. Even if they stink. Who cares? You're five. You know? There'll be plenty of time to meet each other when you get to Division One soccer. (laughs) That's right. Well, Andrew, listen. This has been amazing. I've loved the story. One of the things I love about it is that you're just a regular guy, right? You're, you're yes. like everybody else. I mean, you have, you're unique and you're awesome and I like you a lot, but but it's not like you're Michael Jordan or Eric Cantona or whoever it is coming here and have a conversation with the plebes, right? You're one of the, the people, but you have had an extraordinary life experience. Amen. And there are moments in your life experience that are specifically from sports, from the relationships, from people. You know, kids play sports for all kinds of reasons. And sometimes coaches forget that becoming the greatest player ever isn't always the reason why kids are playing. Andrew, you found friends, challenges, and most importantly, a drive. You got all these things. And and I would say the most important thing you got was this drive or that you exhibited was a drive to be the better version of yourself for your wife, for your kids, for your loved ones through sports. And what more can you ask for in a world where people need help seeing who they can be? Oh, listen, this is Coach Dave. Be kid first. I'm out.